You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness, and thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord, for the children uh, who receive Bibles today, and Lord, we pray that you would bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them, Lord, and pray that you would... um, that you would conceive in them a, a heart that really likes to read the Bible, that has an interest in it. Um, give them a supernatural wisdom um, to be able to hear and receive your word. So we trust you, Lord. I ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, this, uh, this class is the Bible in 30 minutes. Um, for those of you who came to this like independent of the second grade uh, Bible giveaway, if you will, um, we, uh, we handed out Bibles, uh, presented Bibles to the second graders this morning. And so, uh, if I, if I'm referencing that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, here I, I, um, uh, what's up, man? Good to see you. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. That sounds good. Um, all right. So this class, um, th- there's kind of a, a story behind it. Um, the story is uh, Jay Gardner, who used to be the junior high youth pastor, uh, here and who's has since gone on, gone on and been ordained in the Episcopal Church. He and I uh, were driving up to Camp McDowell one uh, for, for uh, to go up to visit Special Session, which is a really wonderful ministry of our diocese um, at Camp McDowell in the summer. So we were talking and we just were saying how hard and how inaccessible the Bible is if you don't know the bigger story, if you don't know the, the meta narrative uh, from beginning to end. You know, if you were just to, to read the book of Hosea um, or to read, honestly, any of the prophets and you don't know about the situation in Israel, you don't know about the exile, you don't know about the divided kingdom, it's not going to make any sense to you. Um, and so, so anyhow, on that trip, we sat down and we uh, basically identified what are the absolute essential chapters or themes Actually, I won't be able to handle it. David, could you shut the door, please? <laughs> Would you mind shutting the door? Thanks. Um, yeah, sure. Go for it. Thanks. There it is. I turned it down as far as it'll go. Yeah. Uh, check. Um, but anyhow, so we, we sat there and we thought, you know, in terms of the Old Testament, what are the essential things that a person would need to know? Kind of foundational chapters of the Old Testament that would make the Old Testament accessible to anybody where you could read any book of the Bible, and if you know about this, that, and the other, it's going to make some sense to you. And so we did this thing called Bible Boot Camp uh, several summers ago. Bible Boot Camp was an hour where we went through what we're going to do today, but in a truncated form. Uh, and then we did another hour of the Old Testament where we went through every single book of the Bible, and we told the story of the Old Testament with each Bible, which each with each book of the Bible inserted. Um, and so just to give people a little bit of uh, a meta-narrative of what's actually going on so that the books kind of have a context. You have some basic context for the books. And I'll say there, there are a couple of, um, couple of books that I recommend or some tools that are, that are really easy. Like, for example, uh, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, it's a book where he basically tells the story of the Bible in about 100, 100 pages. Um, it's, it's, it's very easy. It's very accessible. It's well-organized. It can be read really fast. Um, another one, too, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Jesus Storybook Bible is a really good, um, a very good kind of cohesive, essential meta-narrative of the whole Bible. Um, and so I, I, you know, I had a friend who is interested 
interested in Christ, not a, not a Christian at this point. And he um, he called me and he said, you know, I kind of want to, I kind of want to, I want to be able to read the Bible. I don't know where to start. And I said, start out by reading the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, to your second grader. Um, and he did that. He did that over the course of like two months. Read the whole thing, and it was a good starting point for him. So anyhow, so there's that. Um, other okay, so a couple things just to start. What is the Bible? Just to get clear in this. A lot of times people say, oh, it's, you know, it's a it's a it's a rule book, or it's you know, it's a manual for ethics and morality. That's just not. There are some obviously there's some moral and ethical content in the Bible, but that is not that is not um, the the major theme or thrust of the Bible. Um, you know, terms that we could put on the Bible, divine revelation one, like we believe that it is God communicating to man on man's terms, right? He, you know, it's, it's in human language, it's in human, human metaphors and archetypes. And so we believe it's divine revelation. This is how God communicates to man. That's what we tell kids over and over again. This is God communicating to us. And now that's obviously a pretty big faith leap to believe that the creator of heaven and earth, that God actually communicates with mankind. And so, you know, what is, what is a, you know, how is it that an intelligent person could believe that um, beyond just superstition. The reason I believe it is because that's Jesus's view. Like when we look, when you look at everything that Jesus Christ had to say about the Bible um, in the Gospels, it's very clear that Jesus himself believed that every word of the Old Testament was from the mouth of God through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he, yeah, and he he would say, you know, when he's quoting the Old Testament, Jesus says, "And God said, and God said, and God said." And so anyhow, so that to me, if, if Jesus is God and Jesus is who he says he is, and that's his view of the Old Testament, then that is that that to me is kind of the thing that I hang my hat on as far as believing that the whole Bible is God's word. Uh, and if God could do that in the Old Testament before Christ, then certainly he can do that in the New Testament. Um, Christ having come, the Holy Spirit having come. So anyhow, so just a little thing there. All right, what else is the Bible? The Bible is divine communication in human terms. I already said that. And then finally, I would say the Bible is redemptive history. Like the Bible has a narrative arc to it. It has a beginning, it has a conflict or a problem, it has a progression, and it has a resolution. Now, I, I, I say redemptive history because uh, a lot of times um, you know, people will, could confuse that with like it's myth- mythological. Uh, and that is not in terms of genre, in terms of language, that's not how the Bible is actually written. Like it's written, even like, even Genesis, it is written... Uh, from a, in, in terms of uh, literary analysis, it's written uh, in historic terms. The historic has the, the literary features of historic narrative. So anyhow, it's now history different than the way we think about it in, in, in terms of like a lot of times we think about like a textbook. Uh, there's a lot more kind of art to it, narr- narrative, um, narrative art to it. But um, but still, like I say, redemptive history because we believe that. You know, in a nutshell, it's the story of God's creation of the earth, how the earth is disrupted through sin, and, and the whole book is really um, about God redeeming that problem of sin, that broken relationship between man and God. So uh, just before we go through the whole story, um, before we go through the whole story, uh, you know, in any, like if you were going to uh, tell the story or give someone a basic history of World War II, um, you know, you would probably start um, you'd probably start with World War One, and you'd start with the you know the Treaty of Versailles, and you'd start with uh, you know just the humiliation and the desecration of Germany after World War One, and that creates all this poverty and this humiliation, and this anger in Germany, and out of that comes the rise of Adolf Hitler, 
And so you kind of would, you know, you got you'd start somewhere if you're going to tell the story of, um, you know, of World War II. So with um, with the Bible, we can we can do a similar thing at the very beginning with Genesis one and two and Genesis three. So you know if uh, if you're talking about the structure of any any story, you know it kind of starts with an introduction, you know where the background and the basic terms are laid out. And so in the Bible, that happens in Genesis one and two. God creates the world. God creates man. Uh, man is in perfect harmonious relationship with God um, and with each other and with the created order. And there, and God has this intention. And so here's here's the beginning. It says, this is from chapter one. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image, and in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And to do it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing uh, that moves on the earth. So you can see that um, God intends, in the beginning, for um, the earth to be filled with people who live in relationship with him. They're made in his image. They're made for relationship. They live in relationship with each other, and they're meant to be good stewards of creation. You know, They're meant to cultivate the created, the created order. And so, um, and so that's kind of the beginning, and that gets disrupted in Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve sin. Um, at the core, what happens is, you know, that the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says to them, um, you know, basically God is holding out on you. Uh, you know, if you you should eat from the tree, uh, God knows that you'll be like Him if you eat from the tree, and he he kind of plants this this lie in the heart and mind of Adam and Eve, where they believe that, number one, they cannot trust God, and number two, that they can be their own Lord, they can be their own God, they can be their own king, they can do life on their own terms. And so they sin, and so if we're thinking about the Bible as a cohesive narrative, this is the problem, you know, this is the conflict, right? So if, uh, if you know, we're watching Home Alone, you know, the, the, the kind of the introduction is we're getting ready to go out of town, Kevin, you're such a pill, go upstairs, and the problem is created uh, when the annoying kid from across the street gets in the van, they miscount, and they leave Kevin upstairs. And so the problem of you know, the conflict in Home Alone is that um, is you know mom and dad trying to get back to Kevin um, you know as fast as possible, even if it means selling our earrings um, and our fake Rolex watch, um, and Kevin you know trying to defend the house from the burglars, right? Trying to make it on his own. And so, by, I mean, don't you just love Home Alone, right? And it's just so great. Um, love Christmas. So anyhow, uh, so here is the conflict. Here is the problem in the Bible. The problem is sin. It's a broken relationship between God and man and man and, uh, and other people, man and himself and man and the created order. And so the rest of the arc of this story is about God remediating that problem fully. God remediating that problem fully um, and, um, you know, kind of trying to do it through the, the people of Israel. That's what the, the Old Testament is. And then ultimately having to do it through Jesus Christ and his ultimate intention of the world being filled with people who know and love and worship and serve God um, moving towards that end. So now let's do the actual story of the Bible. Um, the, and, and the main theme here, this is key. The main theme of the Bible is human failure divine grace and redemption. 
That's the that's the that's the over and over and over again cycle of every story. The thing is, is like when you read the Bible, we, everyone comes into the Bible with um, with a kind of preconceived uh, preconceived lens through which they're interpreting it. And the thing is, is, you want that lens to be built off of what the Bible itself says. It's kind of tricky, right? You want to build that lens of interpretation off of what the Bible itself says. Um, but once you kind of have that, then that tends to govern how you read the stories. Um, and so when I read the Bible, I read it as human failure and divine redemption and grace over and over and over again. Okay, so let's get to work. If you do not have this sheet right here, um, this um, this is going to get... Uh, the, the, the train's going to go off the tracks real fast. You're, you're going to want you're going to want this. So the way I'm going to do this is we're going to do the Old Testament, Old Testament in about 20 minutes, and we're just going to go through the chapters. And I'm just going to tell it as if I'm trying to tell you a story. Uh, but it starts out chapter one is creation. We've kind of gone over this, but God creates man, creates the earth. We kind of cover that pretty well. Then we have in beginning in chapter three, we have the fall. This is where sin is introduced. And what you see is in Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11, you kind of see the fall playing out. You see all the fallout from sin. So does anyone know what the story, the next story after Adam and Eve is? Cain and Abel. Way to go. Biblical literacy. All right. It's Cain and Abel, right? You have a bad brother killing a good brother. Okay. And so this goes back to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, a lot of people will say, is the key verse in the whole Bible. It is the the verse through which all of Scripture is interpreted. It says, funny, this is God talking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, and so the way we kind of read this is, enmity, you're going to have two sets of people. You have the people who are with God, people against God, people who are with God's who, God's people, and people who are against God's people. And there will be enmity. So there will be murderous hatred. That's when we take the Hebrew word for enmity. It's, it's, it's uh, in the Bible five different times. And when you look at it, it's basically murderous hatred. There will be murderous hatred between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so if you've ever wondered when you're reading the Bible, like, why is it that everyone is out to get the Israelites? Like, why is it everyone is arbitrarily trying to conquer and kill these like this very very small kind of insignificant nation, we would that that that's the enmity that you see playing out in in, in the narrative, and then you see this um, you see this uh, these two moments of redemption in verse three fifteen it says he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this you know we a lot of people call this the proto evangelion the first gospel. This points to Jesus conquering uh, Satan and the spirit of force of evil. <laughs> On the cross, he shall bruise your head. So Satan, you will be—you'll get a, a head bruise. You don't want your head bruised. That's—that's that's not gonna—that—that's a—that's a mortal shot, and you shall bruise his heel. So you know, Satan, you'll inflict inflict some damage on Jesus. You'll—you'll you'll hurt him, but he will crush you. And so that—he's God is pointing to what has been done here. I will redeem. And then in Genesis 3:21, it says, "And the Lord made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them." So if, I'm not sure if you remember, but after Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do is they try to get fig leaves and cover themselves, try to make clothes for themselves. And them trying to cover themselves is basically them trying to deal with and remediate their own problem of sin. 
And obviously, you know, fig leaves ain't, ain't going to ain't quite going to cut the mustard. And so what we see here at the end of this story, again, setting the stage for the rest of the Bible, you see God uh, covering them. So we would interpret this as God covers their sin. God deals with their shame. How does he do it? It says garments of skin. So that means that some, he, an animal died for them to be covered. So this whole theme of what you call substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary sacrifice, which you see in the Old Testament of you know animals being sacrificed for the sins of people, and then Jesus on the cross being the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of mankind, um, you can see the precedent of that here in Genesis 3. So here we are, we're still in the fall, we've creation, chapter 2, we're in the fall, and so after sin we see this, this promise of redemption and mercy, uh, and then we have the story of Cain and Abel, and then you have just... Uh, you have the, um, the the flood, and you have the Tower of Babel, and you have these stories, and you can see that like the fallout from the fall in very graphic, dark terms. Um, if you read from Genesis three to through Genesis eleven, it's ugly. Like it's really, really ugly. Um, not not for not to read to your five year old. Um, so anyhow, so that's we would call that the fall chapter. Well, in Genesis twelve. This new chapter comes, and this is a very, very significant for the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and this is when God establishes uh, the people of Israel, his people, and he establishes a covenant, a covenant of grace with Abraham. And so Abraham is so significant because he is the father of the Jews. He's the father of Israel. And he ultimately is going to be like the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. But God says to Abraham, Abraham, um, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And he um, does this ceremony with him where it, you can see that it's like a one-way promise. It's a one-way, it's not a contract. It's not like, Abraham, if you do this, I'm going to be faithful. It's God saying, no, 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 Abraham, like I am going to do this purely by my grace. I'm going to um, give you children. I'm going to give you thousands and thousands of descendants. Um, I'm going to give you a land. And so you see, then this kind of opens up the patriarchs period, of uh, which, which goes throughout the rest of Genesis. You have Abraham and Sarah, and they have Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and then you have Jacob and his story, uh, and then you finally have the rest of Genesis being about Joseph. So we call that the patriarchs. And the significance there is you see the establishment um, and the evolution of God's people, God's covenant people that he just chooses to give his grace to, that he chooses to bless, that he chooses to be in relationship with. And so God's people, are that's, that's how the rest of the Old Testament is going to, to focus on uh, the history of God's people and his covenant relationship with them. So Patriarchs takes us to the end of Genesis... Oh, you're going to have to pick up the pace. Okay. Um, it takes us to the end of Genesis and takes us to our next chapter, which you see here is the Exodus period. So in Exodus, this starts in the book of Exodus, and you have God's people enslaved in Egypt. There's this kind of very quick transition, transition from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus where it's like, hey, how did they get down there? But, uh, but the return of events where the Israelites are enslaved and like, hey, wait a minute, what happened to the promised land, right? God makes this promise and here they are enslaved. Well, God says in the covenant, your people will be enslaved, but I'll deliver them. And so anyhow, so they're enslaved and then Moses rises up. God anoints him 
to go and to be the leader who brings them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. They cross the Red Sea. And, uh, and so this Exodus period in, in, in our, in this kind of organization of the Bible, um, the Israelites being released from slavery and brought across the Red Sea into the wilderness is probably the most significant moment in the Old Testament. Um, it is mentioned over 75 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus, God opens up by saying, I am the God of Israel who brought you, I'm the God of Jacob who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. So in the New Testament, Jesus' death on the cross is tantamount to the Old Testament or analogous to the Old Testament, the Israelites being brought out of slavery into the wilderness. And so this Exodus period, you have books like uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy where it involves the time by which the Israelites kind of wandered in the desert for 40 years. They receive the Ten Commandments. They make a lot of mistakes. Um, God defends them from enemies and so on and so forth. But that is, that's the Exodus period. The Exodus period ends um, with, uh, with the Pentateuch, like the end of um, Deuteronomy, with Deuteronomy is kind of preparing them to go into the Promised Land. All right, so then, Conquest period. Conquest period uh, starts off with the book of Joshua. It includes Joshua, Judges, and the book of Ruth. And so what this, this is basically God fulfilling his promise, remember made back with Abraham, that he was going to give them a land. And so Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River in a miraculous way into the promised land. And then from there, God says, hey, he gives them parameters and says, this is the land, this is the territory that I have given you. And I want you to take it over. I want you to, to clear the land and, um, and inhabit it. And they don't, they don't make good on that. They don't fulfill that. Um, but anyhow, and so during that period, God was meant to be the king of Israel. Um, and you see in the book of Judges, which the book of the Judges is as wild as a Friday night. Um, but the, the thing it says over and over again is there was no king in Israel Every man did what he saw fit in his own eyes. So basically, God was supposed to be the king, but they didn't really, they disregarded God as the king. And it's this cycle of Israelites rebelling and falling into idol worship and doing horrible things. I mean, (laughs) one of the stories in Judges is a prostitute being cut up into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, real story. Lots of, I mean, not one to read to your preteen child. Um, but it just, it, but the thing that is pretty um, authentic about the Bible is that it is very honest and real about how hard life is. I mean, it is, it is not a fairy tale. Um, it is totally honest about, um, you know, atrocities and difficulties and, you know, human sin and so on and so forth. But you see this cycle where the people fall into rebellion and then God delivers them a judge who, um, who delivers them and restores them, and they fall back into it again, which is kind of like my day every day. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so, and that also, it also includes the book of Ruth, which is a you know, great story, but it, it, it occurs in the Judges period. All right, so that ends the conquest. They're in the Promised Land, and the conquest ends with the establishment of the monarchy. And this is where, uh, this, this is in like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, well, 1 Samuel is where the monarchy is established. The Israelites say to Samuel the judge, and they say to God, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king like all the other nations. And God says, well, you can have a king, but he's going to charge you taxes. He's going to send your kids off to war. 
They're like, yeah, no, 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 we're cool with it. We want a king. And so they get a king. And Saul is the first king. And so 1 Samuel is kind of primarily the story of Saul, who is kind of a bad king. Started out good, but he was mainly rebellious. And then 2 Samuel is the story of David, who is, is a more faithful king. Now keep in mind, David, um, you know, in 2 Samuel, the story of Bathsheba, David rapes a woman and has her husband murdered. So, uh, you know, good is a relative term. Um, but... You know, but David is repentant and he always, when he makes mistakes, he turns back to God and he trusts the Lord. So, so anyhow, so you have, um, you have Israel now, this nation that's gone from a promise with Abraham to slavery in Egypt to the promised land with no king. And now they're in the promised land with a king. Okay. And that lasts for about three generations. Um, and, and then you have the divided kingdom. I want to tell you, this is one of the least taught yet most important events in the Old Testament because all of the prophets are organized largely based on the North, whether they're speaking to the northern or the southern kingdom. Um, the exiles also, the, the next two chapters are really important. And, and if you haven't, um, if you don't feel super confident in your biblical literacy, these two, these next two chapters um, will do a lot to make a lot of the, um, a lot of kind of obscure books accessible to you. So first, the divided kingdom. After you have, uh, you have Saul, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon. Those are the first three kings of Israel. After Solomon, uh, Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And uh, Rehoboam, uh, you know, Solomon at the end of his term was really harsh. And uh, the people came to Rehoboam and said, please loosen up, like lighten up, like quit, quit being so hard on us. So Rehoboam, talks to some older men and they say, Rehoboam, if you will lighten up, then the people will love you and they'll serve you and things will go well for you. And then Rehoboam talks to his bros. He talks to his peers, his buddies, and his buddies are like, double down, man, like be harder than your dad. So he he, he listens to his bros, his frat daddies, and he, uh, and then, uh, and then the people rebel exactly what the older people said. If you're harsh on them, they're going to rebel, and they rebel. And this is the beginning of the divided kingdom. You have Jeroboam leads a rebellion rebellion against Rehoboam. I always remember that because I'm like, Rehoboam was the real king. Ari, uh, Jeroboam was not. So anyhow, so, so what happens is Israel is divided into two nations, two kingdoms. The northern kingdom... Uh, which 10 of the 12 tribes were, compre- were uh, contained in the northern kingdom. And you had the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is referred to as Israel or Ephraim. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. The thing about, and so what you have here is this, uh, this theme of enmity. The northern kingdom is, um, the northern kingdom is rebellious like all the time. Um, and the southern kingdom is generally faithful. And so when you get into like the book of first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, well, less first and second Chronicles, it's important to know that you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom because, uh, first and second Kings, it alternates between histories of like little short biographies of the Kings of the northern kingdom. And then back to the Kings of the southern kingdom, King of the northern kingdom, King of the southern kingdom. And so you kind of see, and if you don't know that there's a divided kingdom, it's not going to, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, Chronicles, for example, the f- first Chronicles looks at 
David. It focuses on David. And then 2 Chronicles is exclusively the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah. Um, and you see that they their, their stories tend to be pretty redemptive. They're, a lot of them are faithful and penitent, so on and so forth. Um, but anyhow, so that's the that's the divided kingdom. That that event occurs in First Kings. That's when the, that's when there's a divide, uh, and so so you have that. It's also another reason why the divided to know the divided kingdom is so important is because the prophets, some of them, uh, prophesied to the northern kingdom and some to the southern kingdom. So for example, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and oh man. Oh, come on now. Somebody help me out here. Come on, Abby, you've got a seminary degree. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember if it's Nahum. Maybe it's Nahum. I don't know. To the northern kingdom. No, back at southern. Anyhow, who cares? What's that? Obadiah uh, is in the exile, during the exile. So anyhow, um, so, anyhow so you've got, anyhow, like Micah and Joel... And, um, and Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all speaking to the southern kingdom. And so, so anyhow, knowing that is very helpful to make those books accessible to you. All right, next event, super important, uh, the exile. So you have two, two exiles, um, one for the northern kingdom, one for the southern kingdom. Uh, for the northern kingdom, the Assyrians conquer them, they take them out of their land, and it is never restored. The northern kingdom is really... Kind of like a wasteland, an Assyrian wasteland um, going forward. Uh, in uh, I think that's in 712, and then the Southern Kingdom, like 597, 592 in that area, um, the Southern Kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians come and they take the the the, the Judites um, out of the Southern Kingdom to Babylon, uh, and this is really important because several of the books of the Old Testament occur while they are in exile. So, for example, the book of Daniel. Ever kind of wondered, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, how they're, Nebuchadnezzar's the king, wait a minute, he's Babylonian, what's going on there? Well, that's a product of the, of the exile. The, the uh, southern Israelites, the Judahites, have been taken out uh, to Babylon, uh, and they're there for about 100 years. And, um, and so, with that being said, prophets are also organized based on their relationship to the exile. You have pre-exile, during the exile, and post-exile prophets. So for example, like Isaiah and um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Micah, those are all pre-southern exile prophets. Ezekiel, Daniel, and uh, Obadiah are all during the exile prophets. And then Malachi, um, Haggai, Oh, I always get Zephaniah and Zechariah confused. I think Zechariah is post, post-exile. post Just some examples there. So again, knowing that there's an exile, a pre, a during, and a post is helpful uh, in understand, being able to... Um, oh, we're doing really well. Um, is helpful in being, in, in being able to know the Ark of the Old Testament and to make some of the prophets and some of the books of history accessible. Um, also, the book of Esther. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with that one. There's a good little movie for a time such as this. That occurs during the exile. Um, all right, so then finally, we're about to finish the Old Testament. Here we are in 20 minutes. Um, the restoration. Um, there is a the southern kingdom. There's a point where King Darius, or Darius, I never know how to pronounce it, says, 
hey guys, um, it says that God just changed his heart and he says to the Jewish people who were in captivity in Babylon, he says, guys, y'all just go home and rebuild Jerusalem and you know what? Here's all your money back, right? Pretty amazing. And so this occurs in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are about the restoration of Israel after the exile. Um, and I'll tell you, Nehemiah, from, a, stand, from a, a book about servant leadership, is a phenomenal book. Because it's about um, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. That's what it's about. And you see this really amazing leader, Nehemiah, who's very honest and real and very faithful and very tough. They're like rebuilding the wall with one hand and they have so, you know, like spears and swords in the other hand because you know, people are trying to attack them while they rebuild the wall. I mean, it's a really, it's a gritty story. It's really good. Um, and then you have the book of Ezra too, which is about the restoration of worship in the temple and how they start to worship God again, even though the temple is in shambles. And so, um, and so the Old Testament um, kind of ends um, on a sour note because they go back to Israel. They're supposed to rebuild the temple and they get a little distracted and they start to rebuild their own homes and they don't really worry about their, the church and they fall back into idol worship. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And in Malachi, it's just things are ugly in Israel. They're bringing, like, instead of, you know, bringing their best sacrifices to the temple, they're bringing, like, diseased or, you know, this, their worst animals, basically. They're bringing scraps. Um, they're marrying, which is a huge no-no in the Old Testament. They're marrying their daughters to non-Jewish people. Uh, they're not observing the tithe. It's just, it's a, it's just not, it's, it's not good. So Paul Zoll in his book, Grace and Practice, says the Old Testament ends with the, the battery is emptied of battery acid. And that's a, that's a good, um, that's a good description because it ends waiting for the coming of the Messiah. That Malachi 4, last chapter of the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of this promised Savior that has been talked about in the prophets, that's talked about in, in, in David, uh, and that's kind of promised back here in Genesis 3.15. So that is the Old Testament. We have eight minutes for the New Testament. That's a piece of cake. All right, we can do that. Okay, so the New Testament, New Testament's short. And the thing is, it's like the Old Testament is written over centuries, right? It covers, um, you know, over a thousand years of history with the people of Israel. The New Testament, I mean, it covers about... So, you know, we get the birth of Jesus, and then you go to the book of Acts. I mean, it covers half a century, basically, maybe a little more than that. Um, the last book of the New Testament um, is written in about 95 AD. Uh, so anyhow, it's written in a very short span. So the content and the historic, um, the historic time that is covered is short. I mean, it focuses mainly on what we call the Christ event, the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. And so to start the New Testament, we start with the incarnation. Um, that is that the Messiah comes. And one thing I'll say is there is this uh, anticipation that is growing throughout the Old Testament of God's, God himself coming to save the day. God coming in the form of, of, a, of, a, of a human being to uh, you know, restore God's people to do what the Israelites could not do. And, um, and so, uh, so, and you see the picture gets more and more clear, more and more details are added um, as the Old Testament goes along. So when Jesus comes, it's not as if this is random. Uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had a 
very developed paradigm for a Messiah, although um, they kind of expected it to be someone who was going to kick out the Romans and restore Israel as a geopolitical superpower. But anyhow, so the New Testament, it, you know, it starts with the incarnation. Jesus comes, and we're going to include in the incarnation the ministry and the life of Jesus. So his teaching, him traveling around, him bringing on disciples, this, we would include this in the, in the incarnation of Jesus. And, you know, and that is going to comprise a large part of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. And, and so then the, the next piece of this chapter is the crucifixion. And there is a tremendous amount of content, relatively speaking, in the Gospels um, dedicated to the crucifixion, um, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Uh, it also is kind of a chapter in and of itself because what happens here in, in Genesis 3.21 and then the sacrificial system that is instituted in, you know, in the Old Testament law, it, it, it meets its climax in the, 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 the um, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, so huge, huge moment. Then you have the resurrection. Again, um, you know, we're talking about the crucifixion, the resurrection. These are two chapters of the New Testament, but they're so central to understanding the New Testament that we kind of dedicate chapters themselves. But Jesus rises from the dead, um, and so this fulfills the Old Testament expectation of a resurrection of the dead. This signified, they, there was an expectation um, that there would be a resurrection of the body upon God's redemptive work. And so, um, so Jesus rises from the dead to confirm his claims that he is God, his claims that he's the Messiah, claims that he's the Lamb of God who came to take, who came to take away the sins of the world to confirm and validate that that is all real. And, and so, with that being said, um, there's one more huge redemptive historical event, and that is Pentecost. Um, Pentecost is one of the most underrated events in all the Bible. It is huge. And so in Pentecost, what happens? So, sorry. So Jesus has come. He's ministered. He's taught. He's lived. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And that, that covers the Gospels. So then you have the book of Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, you have two ginormous moments. First is the ascension of Jesus. Jesus rises into heaven. Uh, and that's not a small deal because that means that Jesus now reigns on his heavenly throne from heaven. He is now kind of king over the world, and he is orchestrating things through the Holy Spirit. Um, so you have the ascension in, in Acts 1, and then in Acts 2, you have the coming of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is prophesied in the Old Testament, but this is such a huge deal because in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with the Holy Spirit on certain occasions to do certain divine things. With Pentecost, every believer of Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit in the same way that Moses and Abraham and David and Jeremiah and so on and so forth, all the, the way that they were anointed, but it is a permanent anointing forever. And so it is a huge, huge moment. It also is part of what is this, there's this shift, right? Jesus goes into heaven and now what was, uh, what was intended at the beginning for every, all the nations to come to know and love and worship and serve God, uh, the Holy Spirit enables that through God's people. So Jesus ascended, sorry, I know this is a lot here, I know your brain is probably like the pinwheel on the computer, right? Too many apps are up, too many apps are up. Anyhow, but, um, but, uh, but this sequence of events of Jesus ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming down on God's people 
is very significant because it sets the stage for the rest of the Bible, but also the rest of human history <laughs> in spiritual terms. Because now what we would say is, you know, the Bible, um, the, the, you know, the rest of, sorry, the, the next chunk of the Bible, which is the letters. So you have Paul's letters, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st um, and 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, 1st and 2nd Timothy. That basically you have Paul trying to make sense of and trying to explain what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection means, what the coming of the Holy Spirit means. He's writing to people and explaining, and that's why we can, this is part of why we can look at the Christ event, we can look at the Pentecost and make sense of it, is because of what Paul wrote. Um, Paul is explaining what this all means now. Because, you know, this is a huge transition, right, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. From Israelites now, the salvation is offered to everyone, to the Gentiles. And so Paul is explaining what this all means in the, the bigger scope of redemptive history and what it means for our individual lives. That's why Paul's writings are so phenomenal. Um, and so anyhow, so in the book of Acts, churches are being planted. The church is growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is going out beyond Israel. It's going out to Gentiles. And, and so uh, the letters that you see, both Paul's letters and then the other letters, like Hebrews and James and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, jo, um, Jude, um, those letters are, um, are written to churches to kind of give them instruction and direction on what it means to follow Christ faithfully, to give them explanation of what the Christ event means and so on and so forth. And so those letters, you know, if there's a place to start reading the Bible, I would start with the Gospels, getting clear on who Jesus is. And then the letters um, are particularly valuable because they're writing to real people who are, you know, newly new Christians um, and explain to them what this all means in the bigger scheme, but also in their individual lives. So they're very, very practical to our individual lives. Finally, Bible ends with Revelation. Uh, and Revelation uh, is a, an apocalyptic letter. It's a letter... It's a prophecy, it's apocalyptic literature all wrapped into one. And basically, uh, Revelation is explaining um, the end. It, it's not just the end, though. It's basically looking at, um, it's this it's different apocalyptic versions over and over again um, of the intertestamental period, which is not intertestamental, interadvent period. So the coming of Jesus and the second coming of Christ. And you see the second coming of Christ is described like seven different times in Revelation. But it gives us a picture of the end of the story. So basically, the way N.T. Wright describes the New Testament is, you know, you have Jesus coming, and then you have the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. So that's like Act 1 is Jesus coming. Act 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, um, and the establishment of the church. Then Act 3, blank, Act 4, second coming of Christ. And so he says, like, we are, we are living in Act 3. Like, we are living in Act 3, and so how we are living our lives is made sense of in terms of what happens in Acts 1 with the coming of Jesus, Acts 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then looking forward to know the end of the story. We know the end of the story, so we are living our lives, we are on the stage in Act 3. Anyhow, I think that's a pretty cool artistic way to describe it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is 1049, and we have done it. Um, okay, so... Uh, I'm, I'm, if, if you got 10% of that, praise the Lord. Um, if you would like a refresher, 
Bible Boot Camp is on the website. Um, if you go under audio, my tab for audio, and I think it's back in like 2015, um, there are four different audios that are this, two different times, one of the times going through every single book of the Bible, um, both for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. And there's a refresher. There you have it. I'm going to pray for us. If anybody wants to chitty chat afterwards, yes. God's Big Picture. God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. I'm pretty sure it's in the bookstore. Um, yeah, it's really, it's very helpful. Very, very helpful. And then last thing too, oh, just a teaser. Um, if you weren't here early this morning, we are um, making Bible reading plans for people um, to uh, help promote biblical literacy. My brain is shot right now. But basically, it, it's about, uh, we're, we'll, be, we'll be able to publish this in the first quarter of, of this coming year. But basically, we identified different elements of biblical literacy. We made reading plans, particularly for families, but really for anybody. And it'll be about 120 readings. And it'll cover all the base, all the major stories of the Old Testament with explanations on who the key characters and places and items are. They're fantastic. If you want to try to read the Bible with your kids, they're fantastic. But if you just want to get your feet on the ground with basic biblical literacy, um, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. Totally awesome. So, all right, I'm gonna pray for us. Let's roll. All right, Lord, thanks. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, and uh, thank you, Lord, that the, that the story we live in is a story of redemption, um, a story where you are forgiving and gracious and merciful, and that you're the God of redemption um, who seeks to come alongside um, flawed, tired um, people who can't get their act together. So we thank you for that. We trust you and uh, ask these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.